We noted in talking about the debate last week that one of the reasons that there have been so many interpretations of Revelation down through the years is because of the dating itself. I want you to think with me just a minute. Think of another book in the New Testament, try to, that is so interpreted, the entire book, in a multiplicity of different ways and is regarded as so complicated as the book of Revelation. I don't believe you think of one. We go through the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel has a lot of the symbolic type of writing that we have in Revelation. There'll be a problem with Daniel. Oh, I mean, there are, I know there may be individual passages or verses that give us more problem than others. And there may be some statements that we're not absolutely for sure about. But overall, we don't have a lot of problem with Daniel. We, we see that, that uh, image and the four empires, and we identify those four empires. And then we come on down to the various individual empires and persecutions and the prophecy of the Messiah to come. And although every now and then there'll be an individual part that's a little hazy in our mind, we pretty well get that. Uh, Ezekiel has a lot of the same kind of language that we have in Revelation. We don't have any real problem with Ezekiel. We go back there and we say, hey, he's talking about the Jews here, he's talking about the ten tribes here, uh, he's talking about Babylon here, he's talking about the captivity here. And we don't really have a lot of problem. Again, there are those individual parts, but basically, we read and say, well, we're pretty good confidence. And so it is with the other books of the Old Testament, so it is with the New. Isn't it interesting that God chose one book that he just wanted to baffle everybody on? That he wanted every, nobody to be able to understand and for as many people as studied it, they have that many interpretations. Isn't that interesting? Think of the name of the book itself, Revelations. What does that mean? To reveal. To reveal. Is something revealed if you cannot understand it? Okay. I think that's a real good point, I'm sure would make. It's addressed to seven specific churches, isn't it? And those people were expected to understand. The people that he's writing to, why did John, in fact, if they were talking about a, a judgment that was coming soon, like we noticed last week, if they were like we've done through the centuries, they never would have reached the point where they understood it in time for the judgment. They apparently died and didn't understand it. Nobody says that is, is understood. I'm saying that's it. The one book that supposedly God has revealed in a real complicated way, he calls it revelations, and yet supposedly nobody can understand it. As a result of this, a lot of different things have been taught in the book of Revelation. And the Jehovah's Witness, Henry Armstrong, Reverend Moon, L.G. White, a lot of people over the years that have claimed some special insight or inspiration have gone to Revelation and man, they say this means this and this means that and this means that and, and they all differed one with the other. But they were all pretty straightforward and plain about what it is they said was right and, and most people have a hard time arguing with them because they might think, well, I don't agree with you, but then again, I don't know what it says. And so because people have been willing to say or have had to say, I don't know what it says myself, even though they disagreed with the other fellow, they really didn't do anything about it. I don't believe that's 
not intended with the book of Revelation. My first experiences in studying the book of Revelation were just as baffling as those that I've mentioned. Uh, I, when I read uh, Brother Wallace's statement in his book, you know, I thought of the experiences that I've had. Uh, there's not a commentary that I possess, but that I've read about Revelations in that commentary. And anytime some little book would come out through the years where somebody said that here, this guy's got some insight on Revelation, I was ready for that little book. I wanted to understand something about it. But I read the commentaries, I read the booklets, and I read Revelation. I never found anything that I found, found to be absolutely comfortable to me. Maybe you have, I didn't. The first thing that I keep in contact with, the first piece of information, where I read the information and looked at Revelation and then did some investigating, and for the first time, there were some lights that seemed to come on. was when I read Boy Wallace Jr.'s book, this commentary on Revelation. And from the very first, it made more sense, uh, just from a logical standpoint, than anything else that I've read in that, in that area. And then, like I said last week, there were several things that were impressive about it. The fact that a man that is studying and scholarly as Brother Wallace would admit that he would have been wrong before, you know, that really caught my attention. Very studious individual, but too many times he got upset if wrong on something. But then other things began to interest me. As I studied it more and more, I began to find that the traditional date that's been given to Revelation is really a date that's not believed by the majority of the scholars. Now, a majority of theologians and a majority of religious people may have dated in 96 AD. But it was interesting to me to find out that a majority of the scholars do not date it then. And through the centuries they have not. And men that we consider the very top scholars. Westcott and Hort, the editors of the Greek text that the 1901 American Standard Version was taken from, they dated before 78A. Jim McDonald, who did the very detailed work on the writings of John, dated before 78 AD. Robert Young, who published the book, some of you might have it, Young's Analytical Concordance of the Bible, dated before 78 AD. <clears throat> Philip Schaap, his eight-volume set, The History of the Christian Church, is a standard. Uh, in my judgment, the most outstanding work in that realm, surely the one that is quoted the most of all in that area, uh, the one that contains the most information in that, on that subject. And in his revised edition, he says, I've changed in two areas. One of the areas he says he's changed in is on the date of the book of Revelation. Well, I go on and on. We mentioned some last week. Suffice it to say that was interesting to me. Now, remember here is why the dating is important. We said all through the Old Testament, anytime you're going to study anything that is prophetic in nature, dating has to be important. Because you began wherever that fellow started to speak. And if it's a prophetic utterance about something in the future, you have to be able to prove that the event was written before then. In fact, you don't even consider any event until after that. And so if you read Revelation and you accept the 96 AD date, what happens to your mind is that when you read Revelation, you 
crusade aid. You don't even consider it. In fact, most people have read it like I did and didn't even know that there was any other date. On the other hand, if you're considering that it was written before 78 AD, then you've got a great event that's going to be considered along with everything else. Because that big event that happened in the late 60s was the war between Rome and Israel. There was tremendous persecution of the Christians by the Jews. There was persecution by the Christians under Nero. There was the fall of Nero. There was Rome going through three emperors just like that. Then a strong one takes hold, and there is the downfall of Jerusalem in fulfillment of what Jesus has said in the Gospels. And so all of this becomes something that's in your mind uh, if you're considering that day. Now, I've handed out to you 12 sheets. Some of these, now, again, the book I would recommend is one that uh, sure would recommend to you last week to start with, and that's uh, Wallace's book. But I've copied, you'll see, several pages there that are key on the date. Because the most important thing to me about uh, Foy Wallace Jr.'s book is his section on the date of the book itself. Now, notice on page one, uh, there, this article was in Time Magazine. Read that. I'd like for you to read that on your own. And in the center column, right down there below the picture, notice the statement, most scholars believe that Revelation and other prophecies refer to such events as Jesus' death and resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 7. Okay. Notice page number two now. I've got underlined there uh, where Wallace makes a statement like other students. The author has in the past attempted to tread the entangled maze of future prophecy. Theory of Revelation from 1896 to the Dark Ages to the end of time. Like all others who did so, he bogged down in the meshes of the wilderness. All right, then come on down and notice the other part I've got underlined. After many years of intensive study, it is the calculated conclusion of the author that the symbols of Revelation were fulfilled in the experience of the early church, that it bears a pre-destruction of Jerusalem date, and that it is prophetic only in the sense of an apocalyptic description of the struggle of the early church with the Jewish and Roman persecutors and the spectacular and phenomenal victory over pagan and persecuting power. Okay, going to number three. The author of the present volume believes that once the chronology of the book of Revelation has been established as belonging to the period of persecution beginning with Nero Caesar, the harmony of its contents requires all parts and events of the apocalypse to be explained accordingly and not to be mixed with later history. Okay? Now you go back and read the pages on your own. I'm just going through with you the underlying parts. Okay, come on to, to number four. Now on this page, he gives the argument that had put that book in 96 AD. And I'll let you read that on your own 15 and the first part of six, page 16. He tells you about one quote in secular history that has a possibility of two interpretations, even at first reading. And that this was the primary evidence that was used to place Revelation in 96 AD without any further study on the matter. 
On page 16, he begins to quote from scholars down through the centuries that had placed it before 70 AD. And by the way, in his book, he gives the various reasons for that. Okay, come on over to page uh, 6. That was page 5 on mine, page 16 on his. But page 6, he mentions notice there in the middle, James McDonald of Princeton, and then deals with his writings and how the Dr. Howson reviewed and agreed with him. Now, for those of you that don't know Howson, he is considered the outstanding scholar on the epistles of the Apostle Paul. He's, uh, uh, I know when I first started preaching years back, this was the first set of commentaries I got on the epistles of Paul because he was recommended to me by other preachers. And you would find preachers and all, the various religious groups, that have read or have these works of McDonald and House. By the way, one of the marks of a scholar and of his being objective in his work is the willingness of people of other groups to give credit to his writings. Uh, for example, when Josh McDowell, although his background is Baptist, put out the word evidence and demands of earth uh, that we've used somewhat in our study of the resurrection, the fact that it has been so readily accepted by people in all religious denominations shows the scholarship itself that's in the work. The people have not looked on it as a purely biased work, although it definitely has some of his bias. Just like my work would have some of my bias. The scholarship of the book is shown in the fact that people have recognized that he's trying to say something about the resurrection, not trying to say something about the Baptist church, okay? And that's where you draw the line on a scholar. He tries to say something about the truth that he's dealing with and whatever it says, rather than simply trying to defend some particular doctrine that's believed by his particular denomination. Okay, come over to page 7. He mentioned some other names such Sir Isaac Newton, an outstanding genius of the past. Down at the bottom, Robert Young of Young's Analytical Concordance, probably the most sold concordance along with Strong's Concordance that you can get of the Bible. And then also he noticed that the Cyrenaic version, now remember in our study on the manuscript Sunday night, we pointed out that the Cyrenaic version is the oldest version of the New Testament that you can get. It goes back about 150 AD. And this oldest version of the New Testament that you can get dates Revelation during the time of Nero. By the way, there's no versions that would go contrary to it. Just this, this one has it on it. The only one that has it on, and the earliest one, puts it before uh, destruction of Jerusalem at the time of Nero. Okay, now on page 25, and number 8 on my paper, that he mentions the comment of Jerome, and how that in the 90s, that John was a very old man, he would have been in his 90s, and how that he was infirm, and he definitely was not this vigorous individual that is portrayed in Revelation that has been banished to the Isle of Patmos as a result of his testimony concerning Jesus. Okay, now we're to page 9. A little bit about the beasts there. The footnotes are also interesting down there. I'll let you read that on your own. And whenever we get over to the term 666 in the book of Revelation, we'll come back to this on, and a little more information on page 9. All right, page 10. Now, this is from an archaeologist. By the way, that on page 9 is not from Wallace. That's from Jay Adams. And his 
work, the time is at hand. Uh, Jay Adams is of the Reformed Presbyterian background. All right, the next one, number 10, uh, Wilson, uh, his book, New Light from Archaeology, uh, dealing with the Bible, showing that the latest evidence, see, all of John's works have been in the past put between, they were the only books put after 70 AD, pointing out that the newest evidence is going to place the Gospels of John, Gospel of John, before 70 AD. Well, the same evidence will also put Revelation before 70 AD. Now, turn to the next page, page 11. The man whose name you see at the top, you pronounce it, the, the Oriental uh, gentleman. The name of the book there, I should have put down, but did not. The Stone and the Stones and the Scriptures. Okay, you want to write that down, or you want to get it off my list. The name of the book is The Stones and the Scriptures. And again, he's pointing out, he quotes from Albright. Now, for those of you that don't know Albright, he is an outstanding archaeologist, one of the most outstanding of our day. And points out that Albright would date the Apocalypse as Revelation to AD 68. And, of course, uh, the man doing the work here agrees with Albright and puts Revelation at that time. Then notice the last page, page 12. Notice a commented uh, copy there from this is uh, Philip Schaff, and the book is The History of the Christian Church. And notice the part I've got underlined. On two points, I have changed my opinion. This is since the first edition of this book come out. The second Roman captivity of Paul, and then come on down, and the date of the apocalypse, which I now assign, notice now, with the majority of the modern critics to the year 68 or 69 instead of 95 as before. Okay? Now, I want to point out something else. I know a number of religious scholars who at one time believed that 96 AD, the same reason I at one time believed it, who on examination of the evidence came to the conclusion it was written before 70 AD. I do not know if there may exist, but in my own knowledge of either individuals I have heard, seen, talked with, or materials I've read, I do not know of a single scholar who has held the position of before 70 AD that changed to 95 or 96. All of them that I came from at one time held the 96 AD position and changed as a result of examining the evidence for themselves. And so, the point I'm making, this still doesn't prove everything yet. We're going to get into the book. And the big thing is going to stand within the book itself. But when we have studied this before, and when you hear this talked about as a book written before the destruction of Jerusalem and applied to the Jewish nation, and the downfall of Judaism, and the toppling of the temple, and the, the vengeance on those who were persecuting Christianity, Although it may have sounded like something new to you because that, that your background was just as my background had been and all you had heard had been something that drug that through the centuries and had applied it, maybe the beast to the Pope and things of this nature or whatever happened to be the prevailing bad guy at the time. That in reality, it's interesting to keep in mind that the majority of scholars, and this doesn't prove it's so, but it 
least shows that we're not dealing with something that has no evidence behind it. The majority of scholars place this book before 70 AD. But it's interesting that the majority of theologians place it after 70 AD. And there is a difference between an archaeological or historical scholar and somebody who's just a theologian. So many times theologians have religious convictions that they believe. And they go to the Bible to prove those religious convictions. A historian, an archaeologist, a linguist, somebody that is wanting to simply to know what is there and really doesn't care what group is right or what group is wrong. These type of individuals have placed it before 78 AD. And I think that's something to, to think about. There is a distinct difference. In fact, uh, I've learned a lot in just studying this over the years. Uh, there's a distinct difference between studying a subject with the attitude of, I just want to understand whatever it says, as opposed to studying from the standpoint, well, this is what has traditionally been taught me, and therefore I'm going to sit out and prove it right. And I'm going to look for reasons that this is it. If it was written in 96, and it is to be taken through the years, then that's the way it should be. But on the other hand, if it's before 78 AD, and it applies to that event, then that's the way it should be. And one thing I think you're going to see for sure when we get into the book, the book becomes something that I honestly believe is not all that difficult to understand when we put it today in the right place. In fact, I'd like to take Daniel and assign Daniel a date at a different time than where he's at, and then see what kind of interpretation you come up with. And the same is true with Isaiah and other writers. You might find that their books were very, very complicated too, if they were given a date that was different than the date that they were actually written. Okay, now, <laughs> on the chart behind me, is that a focus or not? Everybody see that okay? Okay, we talked about the importance of the day. We talked about some external evidences. And again, I just hit some high underlying points. I'm going to leave it to you to read the page itself. And if you really want to read it in detail, there are several books. Again, Wallace just happens to be the one I'm recommending. There are several good books. The, the Time at Hand by Jay Adams is one that deals with this pretty good also. But uh, this, one, this one here, I thought he did a good job of gleaning all, all the material. The works, of course, of McDonald on John. It's good also to study. But anyway, there's good information there. Philip Chapman, History of the Christian Church. You can also read about the date there in more detail than what we have here. Now, we want to look at the internal evidences of the date itself. And before we look at Revelation, I want to look up there at the, the other articles. And what I'm going to do, because of time, is simply allude to these myself and then leave it to you to go back on your own and check out these passages, okay? I'll leave it to you on your own. And if you don't have, you didn't bring a pencil and paper and all tonight, I'll try to get a copy of this runoff for everybody so you can have it for next week, at least the passages, you know, there. But uh, if you want to have it, so you can go ahead and check it out this week. You might, might drop them down. In Matthew 16, 27 and 28, Jesus, in his lifetime, promised that the kingdom of God will come with power in the lifetime of those people. He referred to his coming again. He referred to judgment 
of the Jewish people as something that would come in their lifetime. And that's also in Mark 8, 38 through Mark 9, verse 1. In Matthew 23 and 24, Jesus, in talking to the religious leaders of his day, called them hypocrites, whitewashed to them, told them that all through their history, they had persecuted righteous people. And he said to the religious leaders among the Jews of that day, that the blood of all these righteous people from Abel, the first righteous man that was recorded killed in the, in the Bible, to the blood of Zechariah, the last righteous man that is recorded killed by the Jews, was going to be required of that generation. Okay? So the Jews and the people of God had a history of rejection of God's promise, God's way. John the Baptist lost his head. Jesus was going to be crucified. The apostles are going to die. The church is going to be persecuted. And Jesus knows that fleshly Israel is going to fight spiritual Israel as it comes out of that fleshly corpse. And so he makes a statement there, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Therefore, your house is left you desolate. And so you won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Man, I really caught the disciples' attention. I said, Lord, what are you talking about? You know, when, when are you coming again? What are going to be, what are going to be the signs of your coming? And the consummation of the age, or the end of the age. Now, the first little problem that caused some problems in this area, Matthew 23, 24, we've talked about that before. The King James translators took this Greek phrase that literally means the consummation of the age, the end of the age, and they put the end of the world. If you look at the newer translation, You'll find they have the consummation, the end of the age. If you'll go back and check a Greek interlinearary, you'll find it without exception. They have the end of the age and the consummation of the age. It's also interesting to note that the Jew really wasn't looking for an end of the world. In John 12, verse 34, we learn, for example, that they thought that when the Messiah come, he would live forever on this earth. Remember what Peter thought when he when uh, Jesus said he's going to be crucified, a dead Christ is no Christ at all. The Messiah is going to live forever on this earth. And these people in the Old Testament are going to be raised up, literally and bodily. They had no conception. They did not think of the end of the world. They thought of it perpetually going on and the Messiah reigning here on this earth. So the idea of the end of the world wasn't even in the mind of the disciples. But the idea of the end of the Old Covenant See, it had been prophesied that a new covenant was coming. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, among other passages. So they knew that that age was going to end, and there was going to be a new age under the reign of the Messiah. Well, Jesus talked about in detail as to what would happen before the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the temple to the point that not one stone would be left standing on another. And then, in the latter part of the 24th chapter of Matthew, he made it clear that all of these things will happen 
in this generation. I believe that's verse 34, Matthew 24. We leave the Gospels. Jesus has promised something as we go into the Gospels. He has promised that in the lifetime of those people that he's going to come back and judge the Jewish nation. But he said before it happened, that gospel, the good news, was going to be preached. And so all over the civilized world where the Jew had been scattered, in fact, if you read through the book of Acts, in fact, let me ask you, every time that Paul went into a city to preach, where's the first place he went? Jewish synagogue. Where's the first place he got kicked out of? Jewish synagogue. Who were the people always wanting to, to kill him and beat him up? And <clears throat> the Jews. What did Paul do before he became a Christian? Do the same thing. By the way, another before we're through the study, I'll have a marking, another handout for you on Acts, where I can simply take you from one all the way through. And it's interesting, in fact, I just sat down the other day out of curiosity and read Acts in, in one study and just let it rest on my mind. And it's interesting to note that from beginning to end, we got Jewish persecution of Christians. Uh, it, just, it just stands out. Jewish persecution of Christians from beginning to end in the early history of the church. So we end Acts, and the Jews, the majority of them, are doing just what Jesus knew they would do. They are rejecting the Messiah and trying to stamp out Christianity. And so the message that's being preached to those people is number one, salvation in Jesus, he's your Messiah, but number two, God is coming again. The Lord is coming in judgment. And he's going to judge and take vengeance on these people that are persecuting Christianity. So we get into the letters. Now keep in mind, the book of Acts encompasses the times that these letters were written in. Okay? And so in Acts we get the history. In fact, one Bible that it might be interesting, you might enjoy reading, uh, that this is one that I want to get. They haven't had it out very long. Got it. I wanted to get it in the, with my, from my standpoint, in the New International Version. But it's called the Narrator's Bible. And it takes the books of the Bible and puts them in chronological order. And so when you read Acts, when you come to the point that Paul wrote a certain letter, it's injected there. And over in the Old Testament, that material is put in chronological order. And keep in mind, as you're reading Acts, you don't just read Acts and then you start all these other books. These letters are written during that period of time that Acts is actually taking place. So what do we read in those letters? Well, and I've only got some of the passages. I tried to pick those passages that were not controversial at all and in anybody's mind it would be easy to see, but you could multiply the passages. Notice down here at number three, Peter writes in the 60s. Both of Peter's letters are written in the 60s. And the people he's writing to are being persecuted. But he tells them the time is at hand for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's 1 Peter 4, 7, 1 Peter 4, 17. So they were waiting right then. The time was near at hand for this judgment. The same judgment that Jesus had explained to Peter and Peter had been preaching. The judgment, judgment on those Jews that were trying to stamp out Christianity. James talks about the same thing in James 5, verse 8. Be patient, the time is at hand. He's, if you'll read the first chapter of James, he's writing to a persecuted people. 
They have been scattered because of persecution. Who scattered them? The Jews. All right, then, 1 John 2 and 18, it's the last hour. The judgment was near at hand. Hebrews 10, 25 through 39. They were waiting for the Lord. He was about to come. Hebrews 10, 37. And look at, at those passages from the standpoint of how personal they are to the people then. We know what happens when somebody rejects the law of Moses. And then what's going to happen to these people that have gone back into Judaism? And that's what he's having a problem with in Hebrews. is Jews that have been converted to Christianity, and now they're sliding back into Judaism. And he wants them to know that judgment is coming on Judaism, and you're going to incur the wrath of God if you continue to stay in, in that position. And he's waiting on a judgment that is about to come. First Thessalonians. That reverse that. First Thessalonians 1 and 10 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 16. Now read 2, 14 and 16 very carefully. And you'll learn that it's the Jews that are persecuting Christians and God's wrath is coming and they're going to be judged. Then we get into Revelation. We just move right into Revelation. And what does he start off with? Remember last week? The time is at hand. Judgment is near. He tells us that in the first chapter. We read it again in the third chapter. And he concludes in the 22nd chapter. Now look over those passages on your own. So Revelation, I'm saying, just takes up where Peter and James and the other letters have left off. But they, it is very imminent now. Now, it's interesting that if Revelation is written after the destruction of Jerusalem, that there is no illusion to it already having taken place. So here you've got this great event that takes place, supposedly, and John doesn't even allude to it in 96 AD. It's interesting because every time in the Bible when God passed judgment on a place, the next time he warned of the place, he went back to this. Like, for example, how many times does he use Sodom and Gomorrah? How many times does he use the flood? How many times did he use Babylon? How many times did he use Assyria? How many times did he use the ten tribes? How many times did he use Judah? When God would pass judgment on a place, and then the prophet was rebuking him again some years up the line, he would remind them of this. Well, John, supposedly, begins to talk about something that's in the future and makes no allusion whatsoever to the greatest event in the history of Israel that's already taking place. And that is the destruction of their nation. The downfall of the city, the collapse of Israel as a nation, the doing away of the temple, makes no mention of it whatsoever. John is talking about not something that's going to happen 2,000 years later. He's talking about something that was near and at hand. And we also notice in Revelation, as we get into it, that John was in persecution right then. And the people he was writing to were being persecuted. And his brother Sherwood brought up, he named specifically seven churches. And one of them was the Church of God. And it wasn't Henry Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God that he wrote it to. And it wasn't L. G. White and Saint Adventist he wrote it to. He wrote it to seven specific churches in Asia. And he dealt specifically with problems there. And then he gets into a big event that's going to take place. Christianity is being persecuted by Judaism. Fleshly Israel 
is persecuting spiritual Israel. Remember the allegory that Paul gave on one occasion where he went back to the time when the son of the promise, Isaac, there was a persecution there between the mother of Israel and the mother of Isaac. And he said the bondwoman was to be kicked out. And he made a comparison there with Israel and the church that Israel was persecuting the church, but the bondwoman was going to be kicked out. Israel was going to be judged, and the church would go and fill the earth. I right, notice something else, number five now. Read those passages, and I want you to notice these passages that at the time that Revelation was written, the Jews were still a force against Christianity. He refers to them in Revelation 2, 9 and 10, as these people that say they're Jews, but they're not. They're really at the synagogue of Satan. Hang in there. Judgment's coming up. Three, same thing. These people that say they're Jews, but really they're not. They're at the synagogue of Satan. Well, Paul said in Romans 2, 28 29, who is the true Jew? He said that the true Jew is one who's been circumcised in heart. That's the true Jew. So you have the fleshly Jew and the spiritual Jew. Fleshly Israel, spiritual Israel, fleshly Jerusalem, and the new Jerusalem, which is the church, spiritual Israel. In John 8, when Jesus is talking, and these people are standing up there just proud as a peacock, they were of the seed of Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. John the Baptist said, big deal, God can raise up children to Abraham from the rocks out here. Here they are, just proud as a peacock. All their hope lies in the fact that they're the seed of Abraham. You know what he said to those fleshly Jews in John 8? He said, your father's the devil. See, fleshly speaking, they were of the seed of Abraham, but spiritually speaking, they were of the seed of the devil. The devil was a liar, and they were liars. He said, if you were really the seed of Abraham, you'd think like Abraham did. Remember what Paul said in Galatians? You and I are the seed of Abraham because we've got faith like he had, and we think like he did. And so our lineage don't go anywhere close to Abraham, but we're of the spiritual seed of Abraham. And that's what Paul made clear in the Galatian letter. And so Jesus identified there the true Jew. Now go ahead and read that whole section there. That's real good in John 8. The true Jew is the one who hears the words of God and believes it. And when fleshly Israel heard those words and did not believe it, they took themselves out of the category of being a true spiritual Jew. The true Jew would be those that heard the words of God and believed it. And there's that contrast in the New Testament now. Fleshly Israel, spiritual Israel. Judah, spiritual Judah. Fleshly Jerusalem, and then in Revelation, the new Jerusalem. The city that comes down from heaven. Not a literal city that's going to drop out of heaven, but the church, spiritual Israel. So, Revelation now, in that book, the Jews are a force against Christianity. Now, one other point, and we'll end on this. Open up Revelation. And this should be in charge. And I'll turn it up, turn over to faith, or Revelation, the 11th chapter. 
Remember, we're giving the internal evidences of this book being written before the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. Hey, look at this, verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it. Because it has been given to the Gentiles. Notice it has been given to the Gentiles. They will, future tense, travel the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Jerusalem is standing. The temple is standing. And John the Apostle is told to measure the temple. And it's been given to the Gentiles. And they will travel it underfoot. And it's written in 96. It's already happened. By the way, it's interesting. The war between Israel and Rome, this is so interesting, all the way through here to me, it was three and a half years. Three and a half years. Started in 66. But come on down to verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of Abus will attack them and overpower and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. Now why do you think he figuratively calls it Sodom and Egypt? Sodom was an ungodly past, ungodly place that God passed judgment on. Egypt was an ungodly place. You don't think the Jews knew about Egypt? God passed judgment on them. Jerusalem is an ungodly place and God's going to pass judgment on it. So in the very middle of the book, he identifies the temple and the city is standing and the trampling underfoot is to take place. It's still in the future, but yet it's a near, near at hand thing. And then the city under consideration is the one where the Lord was crucified. You know, it's interesting that uh, uh, sometime, I, this is one of the reasons that I, when I heard about uh, Brother Wallace's book and read it and grabbed my attention right away before I got deep into it, is that I remember reading over the years, as I read the various commentaries on Revelation, that one after another after another would acknowledge that the internal evidence pictured the situation as before the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation. In other words, here you would have commentaries acknowledging, yes, the internal evidence indicates this, but we've got this secular statement, one statement, that as it turns out is not even a strong statement, and with a misinterpretation, and some hearsay at that, that the dating of that book was based. But it was interesting to me that that always caught my mind. I never placed any significance to it. Just shows you how that you see what you're looking for. And, but it, they would always say that it was interesting that the internal evidence, and it's also been interesting to me in studying archaeology, that any time there's ever been any conflict between the internal evidence of anything in the Bible and something out here in secular history, as soon as enough information comes in, the Bible always comes out on top. And the internal evidence is what stands. There's not a single case in the Bible where anybody at any time in history has said, hey, there's conflict between the external evidence, the secular historian, and the internal evidence of the Bible. But as time goes on and the information comes out, we always find out that this over here wasn't quite accurate, and it was the Bible that was 
Christ that the internal evidence favored that. Okay. We're going to conclude for tonight the introduction of the day. You read the materials. And then the first thing next week, you get a chance to ask any question, make any comments. And then right after that, we'll start with chapter 1, verse 1 of the book itself. Anybody have any comments you'd like to make before we close for the night?